0: This is Asha Voices, I'm JD Gray. During Rachel Archambault's first year as an SLP at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, the school became the site of the deadliest high school shooting in US history. The Parkland, Florida students who are freshmen during that shooting are now graduating. In the years since, Rachel became an advocate for trauma-informed practice, sometimes called trauma-informed care, using techniques and principles to account for and consider the trauma that the students she works with are or have experienced. And in a conversation about trauma, we need to acknowledge the many pandemic-related events so many of us have experienced, from loss of loved ones to economic hardships and the isolation that so many have struggled with. Rachel joins Asha Voices to tell us about serving as an SLP at the school in the years since the shooting and shares the five principles of trauma-informed care she incorporates into her work. She also addresses how SLPs can prepare for the upcoming school year and what a trauma-informed approach might look like as students and staff deal with fallout from COVID-19. I'm J.D. Gray. This is ASHA Voices. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Maximizing Outcomes in Medically Complex Patients of All Ages. This continuing education opportunity begins August 4th. Learn more at on.asha.org slash medical. Rachel Archambeau is beginning her fifth year as a speech-language pathologist at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. She just recently witnessed the graduation of the class of 2021. This was significant for Rachel. When the graduates were freshmen, they went through a very public and tragic collective trauma, the deadliest of any high school shooting in U.S. history. I spoke with Rachel just before graduation in May of 2021. She took me back in time to just after the 2018 shooting to talk about the path she took that led her to trauma-informed care.
1: It wasn't a conscious one. It wasn't something that I sought out before I needed it. It was something that I only fell into because I needed it. So we had about two weeks off after the shooting happened, and I just noticed nothing was getting done, even in classrooms when we first came back, it was more about adjusting students, adjusting staff to being back on campus when they're so heightened emotionally. And I didn't know what to do. And it seemed kind of silly to me to be going back, pulling students and working on their R sounds or working on their reading when it was just, you could see fear in their eyes all the time and, or tears something that I looked into online was just how do I help students that have undergone trauma? And the first thing that came up was trauma-informed education, trauma-informed care, trauma-informed practice. There's no like prescription for it. There's no, you do this and then you do this, but there are certain guiding principles that you have. And it's, safety, choice, collaboration, trustworthiness, and empowerment. These are all the principles that I strive for within my classroom. And the first thing that we had to work on was safety. And a lot of students at that time chose my room to be a safe spot for them. So if the fire alarm went off, which was such a trigger for my students and staff, when the fire alarm would go off on campus randomly, you would see kids just running to wherever their safe spot was, whoever that teacher was, wherever that room was, and they would go sit in there until they could regulate themselves and then go back to what they were doing. So safety was the number one thing that I was looking for. How do I make my students feel safe while at school?
0: This is the first principle that you mentioned, safety. Yes. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about some of the other principles of trauma-informed practice or care?
1: Yeah, so choice is the second one. So if I have another teacher That I know a student is going to feel more comfortable with, I allow them the choice of saying, Do you want to stay with me? Do you want to go with the other teacher? And also in our profession, we're constantly like, Hey, do you want to do shoots and ladders? Do you want to do this activity? We're not really giving them a choice of not to do one, we're giving them a choice of which one they are going to pick. We also have collaboration. And again, with our profession, we are already collaborating with so many different professions and psychology, social worker, those are so important that we work with them to try to figure out how we can help this one child that is super heightened state of emotion. And then you have other students that have a suppressed state of emotion and you think, oh, they're fine with everything, but they're really not. We also have trustworthiness. And I feel like that's speaks for itself a little bit. And empowerment. And that is A way for me to allow my patients, my clients, my students, I want to have them feel validated and affirmed when being in my room. So if they tell me like, I cannot focus today, they don't even have to tell me what it's about. They don't have to tell me the trauma part of it. And I will say, hey, I totally understand. Let's maybe give you a five minute break and let's come back to it in five minutes and see how you feel.
0: So these are some of the principles that you've incorporated into your yeah. well, into your role at the school, it sounds like, not just as a speech-language pathologist, but also just as a staff member of the school.
1: Absolutely, and in my personal life, too.
0: For maybe other speech-language pathologists that might be listening to this who think, what could I be doing differently? What would be something that we would see in the speech room now that maybe we wouldn't have seen you incorporate in your practice in, say, 2017, before you turned your attention to trauma-informed practice and trauma-informed care?
1: I think breaks are the biggest thing. So when I I remember doing my part-time internship and it was a private practice. From the second they get in the door, the second that they leave, it's activity, activity, activity. And it's not leaving them time to transition between activities or break time. There's nothing that I do for 30 minutes straight. I take a lot of breaks. So I need to give myself and my students the same care that I give myself to take those breaks. And they're children. They have a shorter attention span than we do. So breaks are a big thing. And also I'm very aware of the assignment that I give them. There's a website called Newsela, News ELA. And it's just articles that are written to a specific grade level. And they are taken directly from the news. And if there's anything that I know is, I mean, shooting related, I'm not going to give it to them. If there's anything death related, I'm not going to give that to my students. I do a lot of sports. I do a lot about science in general, but nothing. I don't really do a lot of news stuff because my students are so aware of the news all the time, and it's exhausting. I try to filter what I give my students, also how I speak. There's a lot of euphemisms that are death-related, and I try to avoid that completely.
0: Could you give me an example, perhaps, of a, a euphemism that might have been something that was part of your vocabulary before, but now you you try to avoid?
1: One thing that, off the top of my head, is when something's really funny, A lot of people say, oh, I'm dead, I'm dying. Or when you're working out and it's too much, I say, oh, I'm dying. I don't say those things anymore. It seems icky to me and I don't know who's around me. I didn't know that that would affect other people until it was like a week or two after the shooting that I was at a pizza place and someone was laughing hysterically. and was like, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dead. And just like hearing someone saying I'm dying was very triggering for me. Mm. So, I try to be aware of other people that are in that same position,
0: yeah. I think you just touched on a really interesting point is that you know, that we don't know what other people are going through that are near us. And I mentioned earlier your school went through a trauma that was uh, particularly public. Mm-hmm. but trauma-informed practice, trauma-informed care, I understand that these are concepts that they're not just accounting for the the traumas that you know.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. My school was known for being very affluent community. And you have a lot of uh, students there that were being told, Get over it. Like, this is the worst thing that's happened to you. Like, nothing else bad has happened to you. And that's not the case. I have students that were traumatized way before, or were continuing to be traumatized before and after, or have experienced different trauma after the fact. So, just because you're rich doesn't mean that you don't have any issues. Just because you're poor doesn't mean that you have tons of issues. I just assume all my students have trauma. And that makes me a more empathetic person. It makes me change my lessons in order to accommodate everyone. That's the big thing.
0: Rachel says the school district also took steps to address the trauma facing students and staff following the shooting. They held trainings and provided mental health resources. Psychologists and social workers are available to the students. When Rachel told me about the other staff members providing support, I had to ask about the boundaries between being an SLP and a mental health professional. If those lines are ever hard for her to identify and how she handles that.
1: It is tough. It's something that I have had to learn as I go, but I also have done my own research. I had an SLP trauma-informed care training a couple months ago that the Florida Board of Education supported for us. I went to that and I asked directly, like, what is our role as a speech pathologist? If someone comes to me and they're saying that they're going to hurt themselves or others, I will obviously have to report that. A lot of times, if a student tells me something and I'm like, that's a little concerning to me, I will put in a referral with my school and it'll be sent to the social worker, somewhat their guidance counselor, and they will pull them and say, hey, I heard you're having a tough time. That is my role, is to refer out to mental health caregivers. I'm not that. I wish that my grad school and grad schools everywhere are giving their students mental health training for themselves and to work with students and patients. I think that was something that I had to develop on my own and it came with time, it came with working as a professional in this field. But it it definitely is a, a blurred line sometimes and the boundaries have been something that have been difficult as a staff member at the school because with COVID too, we didn't get to see our students. A lot of the times parents had our numbers. Parents were able to text us and everything. And that was overwhelming that they it would be all the time. And that's not a normal situation. After the shooting, teachers were the people that the parents would say, my kid won't talk to anyone but you. You need to talk to him. And it wasn't okay. Teachers were burning out all over the place. They would come to school even though they needed a mental health day. And a lot of them didn't feel, if they didn't come to school that day, their students wouldn't come to school that day. And it was the case for a lot of students that they didn't feel safe unless their safe person was there. So it was a lot of that responsibility. And that end of the first year was really tough and a learning. It was a lesson for a lot of staff members that's like, all right, I need to put more boundaries on this or else I can't keep going like this.
0: We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we look toward the future, returning to schools that are dealing with the fallout from the pandemic and what Rachel would say to this graduating class. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference, Maximizing Outcomes in Medically Complex Patients of All Ages. From August 4th through the 16th, this continuing education opportunity will share the essential knowledge and skills to optimize outcomes and adapt to real-world service delivery challenges. You can earn up to 3.2 ASHA CEUs. Learn more at on.asha.org slash medical. I didn't feel like we could have a conversation about trauma without acknowledging the pandemic. And so I brought the subject up to Rachel.
1: I think speech pathologists need to know that we are going through a collective trauma right now. And a collective trauma doesn't mean that everyone experienced trauma from this. There are some people that have gotten through unscathed and that is great for them. But there are other people that have had their lives flipped upside down. And when you are working with a student and you downplay or give your opinion of how things went for you, and that's not how it went for other people, it's, it's hurtful. And it doesn't make a good relationship. It doesn't make it a good therapy session. It doesn't make it a productive time spent. So it is a collective trauma that we need to be aware of now and for the next many, many
0: years. And when you're talking about the language we use to talk about the pandemic, I assume that you might be referring to something like if someone is referring to the time they spent at home or something like that in a positive light that this could be, is this the type of thing that you're referring to?
1: I think of a session I had with a student that does not have a filter and he was repeating what his family was saying. And it just so happened that the other student in the session with me lost half her family to COVID. So I knew that she was not happy with that. I could see it on her face. So I stopped it and I took the boy outside and I was like, Hey, just so you know, there are people out there that have had a very difficult time with this. And it's not really appropriate to say in this setting. And that's what I'm working on with him is appropriateness anyway. So it became part of our lesson and something that I hope he carries with him in his other classes that you can't just say things like that.
0: In the past, Rachel has spoken to the Florida Association of Speech-Language Pathologists and Audiologists about trauma-informed care. The 2021 conference took place in July, but when I spoke with Rachel in May, she was still preparing what she would be presenting, and I asked her what she thought she would be speaking about.
1: The major theme is going to be covid When we are going back to school in the fall, how can we be more mindful of the things we say? How do we provide a safe atmosphere in our room? How do we give them choice? How do we collaborate? How do we instill trust? And how do we empower our students? Those are the five principles. And I want to make sure that other teachers, other speech pathologists are putting that at the top of their priority list because we just went through a collective trauma and are still going through it technically. We just want to make sure that we are being compassionate, empathetic, and if we treat everyone as though they have been traumatized and just being empathetic, then I think we'll have more productive sessions and we will be better for it.
0: Rachel shared five principles to keep in mind for a trauma-informed practice. Safety, choice, collaboration, trustworthiness, and empowerment. She talked about other ways she maintains a trauma-informed approach, like being mindful of the language she's using and staying aware of the experiences the students she's working with are going through. My mind went back to other SLPs listening to this episode, and I asked Rachel for a few other techniques SLPs could use.
1: For trustworthiness, I know a lot of teachers will say, I'm the only teacher that this student wants to go to, and it. I never say that. I will never say I am this student's chosen person. Like I need them to tell me that because I can't decide that for them or I don't necessarily know that. I don't want anyone to force this trust. It doesn't work like that. It has to be very natural. So don't put in place a plan of trying to f- foster trust just by using the, the five guiding principles, you will create an atmosphere of trust and you need to show them you can't go back on your word or anything and you really have to stick with it or else they're not going to trust you especially with high schoolers that's so difficult they can see you lying from a mile away you should not be a trauma detective that is my biggest word of caution word of advice it means i'm not going to look for this child's trauma so if i have a student that the the parent tells me oh they've gone through trauma I'm not going to get the student into my room and say, what happened to you? Like, why are you this way? I don't need to know. All I need to know is that this student went through trauma. We have the ACE study. It's the adverse childhood experiences. And this is quoted across trauma-informed presentations. It's very well known. All I need to know is that they have experienced trauma or I don't even need to know that. I don't need to know it for a fact. I just say this kid has probably experienced trauma at some point. And that's all I need to know. So don't be a trauma detective. Do not go looking for the trauma. You don't need to know what it is to be an effective speech pathologist or, or therapist.
0: Any other tips that you'd want to include?
1: Try to do as many CEUs as you can on this topic. Um, it's, it's changing constantly. There are great people on Instagram that I follow and that's part of what I do on my page is I find it and then I repost it.
0: Rachel posts on Instagram as the PTSD SLP. She makes posts, capturing what she's reading, as she said, and sharing her personal experiences.
1: I try to be very open about it so people understand. And a lot of time, they're like, wow, that's so hard what you're doing at school. Or just even being at the school, they're saying, is so brave. And for me, I don't feel that way. Um, So I try to relate what I'm going through because I'm not a kid. And what our students are going through, I think, is very tough. Being at the school that this crime took place and walking by that every single day or your friends aren't here.
0: Rachel says the students that were freshmen during the shooting are graduating as a part of the class of 2021. She thinks their graduation will change the dynamics of the school, but she'll continue advocating for trauma-informed practices. When I spoke to Rachel in May, graduation was approaching. I asked her if she had a special message for the graduating class.
1: Oh I'm gonna burst into tears. They have had the worst high school experience, I think, of anyone with between the last two years of COVID with that as their freshman year. I hope that their life after college is going to be better. I want them to continue working on themselves using their coping strategies like we've worked on and I know that they're going to be successful and I just want them to keep working on themselves. Don't hide from anything. Don't avoid anything. Because that was a big thing, that they wouldn't go certain places because they were fearful of it. But they've worked through that, that they're, they can use their coping strategies now. And I want them to know that I'm here for them. And I'm excited to see what the future brings for them.
0: What does it mean to you to see them graduate?
1: Oh, it, this class is going to be one of the hardest. I think last year's class was really difficult because we never got a graduation for them. But I think this one might be worse, especially because it'll be a memorial, this this graduation, where I think it is going to be extremely emotional. The other students that are just over the sadness of this, I, a lot of my students go across the country and they're like, I don't want anything to do with it. And I understand. I want them to do what makes them feel comfortable, what makes them happy. And I'm here for them whenever whenever they need.
0: Rachel, thank you for the conversation. I appreciate being open, sharing your experiences and your knowledge of how to incorporate trauma-informed principles into your work.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Rachel shares her stories and resources on Instagram. She's the PTSD SLP. Go to her page. You can read a letter she wrote to the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School graduating class of 2021. And find more resources online to support you when working with children who have experienced trauma. We'll put links to continuing education opportunities on the blog post for this episode. That's at leader.pubs.asha.org. ASHA Voices is produced by the American Speech Language Hearing Association and comes from the team behind the ASHA Leader Magazine. Support for ASHA Voices comes from ASHA's online conference on voice. It's called Maximizing Outcomes in Medically Complex Patients of All Ages, and it begins August 4th. Learn more at on.asha.org slash medical. Production assistance for ASHA Voices comes from Pamela Lawrence. I'm J.D. Gray, and this is ASHA Voices.